Hey, I'm Mike Joseph, and thank you for listening to Detoxicity, a show by men, about men, but for everyone. I hope you enjoy the content of this podcast, and I want to let you know about a few things you can do to support us and our mission to challenge traditional notions of masculinity and create a more communicative, positive, and loving environment for all. You can subscribe to Detoxicity on any podcast platform that you use to listen. We are available just about everywhere. Also, don't hesitate to rate and comment as these help us move up in the podcast rankings. I'm on social media, or at least I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok as Detox Pod Guy. Feel free to drop me a follow. Now I have a Patreon page, yay! And uh, Patreon gives you the opportunity to get cool merch and exclusive episodes of this podcast in exchange for subscribing. Go to patreon.com slash detoxicitypod to find out more. Uh, finally, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, whether you found an episode of the podcast particularly enjoyable or enlightening, or you know someone who'd be a great guest, or you'd like to offer constructive criticism, or if you yourself would like to be on the podcast, hit me up. Reach out to me at one of the aforementioned social media channels, or if you're old school like I am, drop me an email, detoxpod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and take care. My guest for this episode of Detoxicity is Chris Loper. Chris is a habit coach, and if you are wondering what the hell a habit coach is, (laughs) listen to the episode and you'll find out, although I think you can probably glean from common sense exactly what that entails. Anyway, uh, in our conversation, Chris talks a lot about habits and suggestions for breaking out of some of the habits that we maybe don't like so much about ourselves, Uh, but that's not the only thing we talk about. Chris is... An adrenaline addict, I guess, is a uh, good way to put it, and that has led him down some pretty dark roads in the past, and we talk about what happened when he went down those dark roads and how he avoids those dark roads these days. He also has a book out. It is called Wood Floats and Other Brilliant Observations. I guess I missed my... I missed an important question by not asking him what the title of the book means, but you know what? All that means is that there'll be a part two of the conversation at some point. Anyway, Chris is a really good dude, and uh, I learned a lot from him during our conversation. I hope you will as well. And uh, here he is. Hey, Mike. I'm a habit coach and a writer and a tutor. My main thing over all of that is just helping people reach their potential so that they're not held back by limiting beliefs or feeling like they're incapable or inadequate strategies for behavioral change or learning. And in general, just tapping into what your brain can really do to live your best life. And I guess the first question is, what is a habit coach exactly? For for those who are unaware, (laughs) including myself. Yeah. So I'm not a life coach, like we're not going to do therapy adjacent conversations in my work. I'm not going to tell you what to do with your life. People come to me already knowing what they want to do, what they need to change. And they're not doing those things. So this is like, I know exactly what I need to do to grow my career or build my business. And I'm just not doing the work or my doctor tells me to do this or I've got all this physical therapy homework, or my therapist wants me to do these things, and I just can't get myself to do it. Or it's bad habits, like I stay up on my phone all night instead of going to sleep, or I'm a drug addict and I need guidance on recovery. Got it. So Mm -hmm. 
addiction is a separate thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. However, I want to know if, if in over the course of your work, because this actually is something I'm really interested in, the first set of things that you mentioned where it's like, my doctor tells me I need to do this and I just can't do it. Or my therapist yeah. tells me I need to do this and I just can't do it. Have you found that there is a common, maybe, I mean, there's probably not mm-hmm. a universal reason for anything, but is there a common reasoning behind why people don't do that stuff? Yeah. The most common issue is that people don't approach behavioral change with any real strategy or any tools. They just think, okay, I'm going to make myself do it. And it's like this brute force willpower thing. And that turns out to be way too hard. And the good news is there's loads of strategies that make behavioral change easier And other people figured them out. They're supported by scientists. And we just have to put those tools into action um, instead of trying to go it alone and just do it with raw willpower. Right. I Raw willpower, quote unquote, (laughs) is something that I think a lot of people feel like they should have, but don't. Right. In my opinion, it's really hard. As much as you may want to really do something really, really bad, like everybody, not everybody, most people mm-hmm. want to be healthy. Yeah. They want to eat well. They want to work out regularly. Sometimes life gets in the way. Sometimes mm-hmm. there's just mentally things happening that just kind of serve as a block to make them not be able to go to the gym three days a week or stop eating ice cream for dinner every day, whatever it is. <laughs> um, yeah. How... I'm trying to phrase my question here. One thing I think, and again, this is kind of personal experience here, is having people to hold you accountable can be super, super helpful. Have you found that to be the case? Yes, but it's nuanced. So if you're quitting something, like say you're going to quit sugar or get sober or something, you mm-hmm. should tell everybody because you want this kind of bubble of social accountability. Anytime you might have an opportunity to use the thing you're quitting, you don't want people to offer it to you. Like if I'm not eating sugar, please don't push dessert on me. If I'm not drinking, please don't offer to buy me a drink. So there it's pretty simple. You just tell everybody. But if you're doing a positive habit, like you're trying to build a thing, I'm going to write a book or I'm going to, exercise or run a marathon this winter, then you need to be more careful. Because if you just announce that to everybody that you're doing this thing, you're going to get a good feeling that's totally unjustified because you haven't done the work yet. Right. And there's research that shows that's actually demotivating. Huh. To go, if you tell people, hey, I'm writing a book. And then this good feeling like as all you'd already done it, but you haven't done the work yet. Right. So I wrote, knowing that I wrote my book completely in secret and didn't tell anyone until I had a whole draft. And I just dropped a draft onto the kitchen table. And I was like, hey, Christina, I wrote a book. Here's my book. And she's like, what? (laughs) (laughs) So when you're trying to build a habit or some positive behavior or work towards some goal, like maybe starting a business, it does sometimes make sense to talk to people and get accountability going, but they need to be 
very particular people. You're not just going to announce it to everybody. You're going to choose carefully the people who can help you. I talk to my brother about business stuff because he knows more than I do. Sure. It's like, so if I'm thinking about something, I'll noodle it over with him because he's going to actually have good advice. Or when I work with clients on building good habits, I am an accountability check-in every week to help them stay on track, which is different from they tell all their friends they're doing a thing. Right. Right. How did you get started with this work? I found that with most people who work in the helping people field, generally speaking, whether it is as a therapist or as a coach, they got into that work because of them realizing something within themselves or having had the experiences in which they needed someone to provide the service that they're now providing to others. Yes, that's exactly right. I learned everything I know about mental health and self-care and habit change out of pure personal necessity. In my 20s, I was a hedonist. I lived in the mountains, ski bum lifestyle. I was a drug addict. When I got injured and my whole lifestyle kind of fell apart, I just became severely depressed and I had no idea how to get myself to change. And it took two, three years of just wallowing in depression and bad habits before I reached a breaking point and decided I needed help. And I got my help in the form of reading books and taking online courses and watching YouTube videos and listening to podcasts, taking notes and experimenting with different tools to see what would work for me. And then I was teaching classes about it to my friends and I started writing about it and then I started coaching. So taking yourself back to 20s, Chris, Mm -hmm. uh, what was the motivation to live the life that you were living at that point? It sounds like you were a little bit of a, a rock star in whatever form that that took, right? How did you get there in the first place, I guess? Yeah, I was a very much pleasure seeking person and a kind of an adrenaline junkie. So skiing, mountain biking, rock climbing, doing these things in very sketchy ways where I was likely to get hurt. And if I wasn't doing something like that, or even if I was doing something like that, I also needed to be high or drunk and always seeking a higher high and an immediate gratification. And part of that is just driven by a kind of a dopamine addiction cycle. And sure. part of that is also, I had decided that was cool. Like I thought, oh yeah, I'm going to go ski along the edge of this huge cliff like it's nothing because that's badass, <laughs> which is all good until you actually fall off that cliff. Yep. <laughs> you know? I it's really interesting to me. I consider myself a fairly risk-averse hedonist, whatever that means. <laughs> um, and I, I don't know that I know anybody personally who is one of those super thrill-seeking people who jumps off cliffs and climbs mountains and does all that stuff. But whenever I read about that stuff or see that stuff from a distance, it feels so foreign to me because I'm like, what in the hell possesses someone to... <laughs> <laughs> risk life and limb in a lot of cases for the sake of something it doesn't really feel like they can define like 
there's exercise in climbing mountains and hiking and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But there's exercise in walking around the block a few times too. And yeah. one is significantly safer than the other thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So uh, was it just the dopamine rush for you? I feel like it was also trying to prove myself in sort of an unhealthy masculinity, proving myself kind of way. In middle school, I was a total nerd. I was scrawny. I wasn't cool in any way. I kind of found my own niche in high school among cooler nerds, I guess. (laughs) And we did stupid things like building bike ramps and flamethrowers and going hiking. But I guess in my 20s, I really kind of fell into a I'm a badass man kind of thing. I'm chopping firewood to heat my home and I'm going to go climb that big mountain because then I can tell people I climbed that big mountain. There is something really stereotypically masculine about that. You don't see a lot of women or non-binary folks indulging in that thrill-seeking kind of stuff. Like, there are obviously Mm -hmm. skydivers and mountain climbers and all that stuff, but I'm thinking, like, the Dirty Jobs dude or, like, uh, the Mm -hmm. Barrel Grills or Grills or whatever the hell his name is. That kind of stuff. It's always some dude. And you think about roughing it and living in the wild and hunting and blah, 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 (laughs) doing all that stuff. And the idea of it or we've been conditioned to believe the idea of doing that is so masculine. That's what a real man is. And again, I am relatively confident in my masculinity and that shit does not appeal to me at all. Right. Part of me is like, well, I grew up in a city. I didn't have any exposure to that kind of element. So maybe that's part of why it is, but also again, I'm just not a risk taker in, Mm -hmm. in that sense. Like I know that if I want something to eat, I can go to the supermarket and buy meat and bring it home and cook it. I don't have to go out to the woods and wrestle animals and shit. And also, objectively, that behavior does not make you any more of an anything yeah. than anything else does. You're right. Was there a point when you were kind of in the midst of your thrill-seeking when you were just like, hold up, what am I trying to prove to myself? Like, this isn't some kind of masculinity big balls contest. What am I doing? I didn't have a come to Jesus moment in that sense until I almost died. I was skiing along the edge of a 30 foot cliff and we call that a no fall zone because if you fall, you're probably going to die. And I did fall and fell over the edge of that cliff and landed on a bent over tree on my belly and wrapped myself around that tree. And the tree really saved my life because I could have hit my face on the snow and just broke my neck. And if I'd hit the tree with my face, I would have died. If there'd been a branch sticking out, I would have died. I ended up hurting my knee and my back and having a big concussion. And I had a lot of time to think after that as I was injured and realized, what the hell is the point? That's so stupid (laughs) to go risk your life to have a slightly more interesting ski run where you could point to your ski tracks and you're like, look, that was me. I was a badass. It's like, well, nobody really cares. And the people who actually care about me don't want me to die. Right. Are probably scared (laughs) shitless. Like, what the hell is this dude doing? Yeah. 
that's uh, yeah. pretty intense. Again, it's just not something that I <laughs> have any experience doing. Like, I remember I had some coworkers that went skydiving once. And I was like, y'all can leave me the hell out of this because <laughs> I like having my feet on the ground. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, I guess trying to formulate another question here because you've been open about this and you've written a book and you've done all this stuff. Do you get people coming to you saying, hey, this is behavior that I am sort of addicted to. How do I kind of jump out of that? Jump might not be a good word to use in this scenario. (laughs) I have never worked with anyone who was an adrenaline junkie like I am, but there's a very similar pattern of dopamine addiction that I see in lots of different ways, whether that's alcohol or marijuana or binging TV or TikTok late at night, just mindlessly scrolling through social media when you don't want to or compulsively playing video games. Those things are super common in the modern world. And it's a very similar sort of addiction where you're not just doing it habitually. You also just can't imagine doing it, living a different way. If you do something enough, your identity gets wrapped up in it. Right. And you forget that there was another way to live. There was a time in your life when you didn't do those things. You could go back and be like that. Or you could completely reinvent yourself and not do those things. Be something different. Yeah. Absolutely. You mentioned addiction and you've mentioned substance addiction on a couple of occasions. As someone of a certain age, I've kind of traced the evolution of the way that people talk about addiction as well as the way that people talk specifically about marijuana. Yeah. Uh, and probably not everyone shares the opinion that marijuana is something that can be used to excess. So you can be addicted to. I mean, I personally think you can. I even as an occasional user, I think that people who smoke every day are probably addicted. Yeah. <laughs> and you've mentioned that you have been sober for quite some time. Yeah. So congratulations for that. Is it a Thanks. situation where it's like, I can't regulate this or I don't know how to regulate this. So I'm going to just abstain, period. Is it this stuff just doesn't do anything for me anymore? So I'm not going to use it anymore. How did you get to that point? And what is your relationship to maybe other people who use that stuff now? Yeah, my experience with alcohol and marijuana was that I didn't have any control over how much I was using. So if I was using, I was using to a stunning excess, drinking tons and tons all the time, or eventually my body was like, you cannot do that. We're small and this hurts. And (laughs) and I was like, okay, I'll just smoke weed all the time because that's not as hard on your body. And I mean, I've smoked all day, every day for years. And I was in a culture of friends where that was normal, where everyone I was close with was also a marijuana addict. And we were just using all day, every day, as though that was just normal and okay. And I tried getting sober through, or I tried stopping the excess and maintaining some use. Like, well, I'm only gonna use at night or only on the weekends, or I'm gonna quit for a month and then I'll be okay. 
and then I'll be able to use in moderation. I'll quit for a year and then I'll be able to use in moderation. None of that worked. If you're actually an addict, in my experience, 100% abstinence is the only solution because the nature of being an addict is you don't have control over the level of use. It's you're using or you're not. And if right. you're using, you're really using. Right. You know? Right. You said earlier when we were talking about the adrenaline rush, the dopamine rush, and you said you are still an adrenaline addict, which I thought was pretty telling. So presuming you're not skiing off cliffs and shit anymore, what are you doing to manage that? How are you getting your juice, so to speak? Yeah. I, what I was really seeking there was the flow experience of being totally in the moment, in the zone, pushing yourself, doing something that's challenging, but not too challenging and in such a way that's completely absorbing. And I can still get that experience through skiing and my skiing might look sketchy to other people, but compared to what I used to do, it's totally safe. (laughs) There is some risk involved, but it's 10% of what it used to be. So the way I explain it is I try not to be an idiot anymore, but I'm still sort of an idiot. I feel like there's a risk inherent in skiing, no matter what you're doing. Yeah. There's just like, are you going to be an X Games person? Yeah. Or are you going to just be casually skiing? Like everybody in their family goes to whatever mountain and Mm -hmm. skis in the winter. Yeah. So there are definitely (laughs) levels to that. And what is your relationship, I guess, to masculinity now? What have you learned? Which is, I guess, the overarching topic of this entire podcast. What have you learned, whether through your own experience or through doing what you do and experiencing it through others? Yeah, I've had a lot of time to reflect and think about different role models in my life. And I've had a lot of really good male role models in my life, from my dad to uncles to my parents' friends. And there's a lot of diversity among those guys. And the commonalities are that they're really helpful people. They're there for their family. They're there for their friends. Sometimes that just means being there to talk to people. Sometimes that means being there to help them with their deck remodel, which feels more traditionally manly. But I grew up watching my dad do the dishes whenever we went out to dinner at somebody's house. And when I grew up, I realized, oh, that's actually just a really nice thing to do. I should just do that. They cook dinner, I should do the dishes. And if you go to the 1950s and think like, no men are doing that. That's women's work. And it's like, no, that's ridiculous. I mean, there's no such thing. Work is work is work. Right. And I love the idea of going to someone else's house and they make dinner for you and you volunteer to wash the dishes. That strikes me as something that's very kind of old school. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure that I've done that before. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just because it was kind of the way that I grew up. If somebody gives you a meal, you somebody feeds you, you Mm -hmm. help them out in the kitchen as much as you can. Yeah. But there's something about that that just kind of like made my heart smile a little bit. So I like that. And it does sound like you had some really good role models in your life when there are... (laughs) quite honestly, still quite a lot of people that don't. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So you were pretty fortunate. Oh, yes. Very fortunate. Yeah. And there's also in your writing and even in the notes that you provided to me, there's a balance of sort of traditional or stereotypical masculinity and things that you are fond of or that you do that are not considered 
stereotypically masculine. I, were you always a creative or a sensitive kid? Was that struggle for you at all? Yeah, I was always, mm, I felt like more sensitive and than other boys my age, more prone to cry if I got hurt or feel left out. And I was a kid who would walk around the neighborhood and find cats who were out on the lawn and befriend them. Oh. And I remember experiencing other kids' dads as like looking down on me for being that way um, and feeling like, should I be ashamed of how I am? Uh, And to this day, I'm a sensitive, nerdy guy. I'm a birder, I'm a board gamer. I, I like to read. I make art. I, yeah. You are a birder. Yeah. How did you get into that? I'm insanely curious. Yeah. So birding is a really cool example of something that has turned into a passion through engagement. I actually wrote about this a few weeks ago for the blog. My wife and I play a board game called Wingspan. Okay. It's a very popular modern board game. It's all about birds. And during the pandemic, she was like, what if we did this in real life and went out and looked for birds out in nature? And I was like, yeah, sure, I'd try that. So she bought a little book and some binoculars. And we just walked out to the park and see what we could see. And it was cool. We liked it. And so we (laughs) kept doing it. And we got more and more into it through repeated engagement. You learn more and more. You go deeper and deeper. And we start planning trips to go to places where there's lots of birds and keeping track of what we've seen and just really nerding out about it. And now it's just, I am so passionate about birds. And if you asked me three years ago, are you going to be passionate about birds? I'd be like, hell no, that doesn't right, make any like, sense. That's why? not who I am. Right. I, I love that just because, I mean, for a couple of reasons. One is just that I know other people who find it fascinating and I am just curious how people end up falling into that. Yeah. The people that I know that are passionate about it are super duper passionate about it. Mm -hmm. So, and also what the second half of that conversation, I think highlights is that you can, even as you get older, your likes and dislikes and the things that you're into and the things that you're passionate about have the capacity to change. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, Which I think is important. And even you referenced before being defined by just one thing, I am certainly of the belief that we contain multitudes. (laughs) Yeah. And we should probably try to pursue as many things that make us happy as possible so that we're not defined. I feel like if you're defined by just one thing, if you get let down by that one thing, you're pretty screwed. Yep. I mean, that was me as a mountain athlete. And then I got injured. And then it was like, well, who am I? And then it was like, I guess I'm a drug addict. And then identifying with that made it hard to quit. And it's like, you need to have a diversity of roles you can take on so you can change when you need to. Yeah. Just the idea that you can only be one thing. And even I'm thinking even now when people talk about building a brand on social media, it's like, (laughs) well, the, the only way to keep an audience is to focus on this one thing. And I'm like, that's boring. Yeah. People who are only interested in one thing are, I think they're boring. I I like people who have a variety of interests. Yeah. So. 
I, so, yeah. I would get bored if I just did one thing. I would be super bored. I have a little ADHD and I can't just do one thing all the time. So it's like I got projects, I got multiple jobs, I got multiple hobbies, and I need to mix it up. Yeah, it keeps life interesting. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming in my head that most of the coaching work you do is with adults, mm-hmm. but you also work with kids. And I think it's super important for, as we said earlier, for children to have positive role models and people to model behavior. I, I talk a lot on this podcast about modeling behavior, yeah. Uh, which I think if you grow up in a certain environment or you grow up around certain types of people and you internally feel different from those people in whatever way, you're not really going to come to terms with that difference until you see somebody who embodies the the qualities that you're feeling internally. It's like people who feel gender dysphoria mm-hmm. and can't really humanize it until they meet somebody else or they encounter somebody else that is experiencing the same thing. And then they're like, oh, well, this totally explains how I feel inside. Yeah. So modeling behavior is important. And I think particularly when you're a kid, because... I, I can only speak for myself as a kid, but I was dealing with all of these conflicting emotions and didn't know how to express them. And if there were adults in my life who had said it was okay to be any of a variety of different things, I think I would have come to terms with a lot of that stuff a lot more quickly. Mm -hmm. So how much does your work with kids speak to the need for them to have model behavior, role model, safe spaces, all that stuff? Yeah. I work with lots of kids who are struggling with tech addiction and they don't know how to manage it. And the only conversations that happen in the household are parents judging them for being on their phone too much or playing video games too much. And there's nothing healthy going on there. And they're not being met with empathy. When I talk to them about it, I'm like, grownups gave you this world where we have all this addictive technology. They got neuroscientists working with the coders to make this tech super addictive. There's probably AI right now trying to make it more addictive. And so it's really an uphill battle and it's not your fault at all. And I talk about how I struggle with it and then what I do to manage it and just kind of humanize the situation for them. So they can see there's nothing wrong with you. If you're a teenager who's hooked on their cell phone and let them experience some empathy around that. And then they're going to be a lot more open to changing their behavior using strategies. Now curious, what are some of those strategies? I don't want you to give away the whole book of secrets. Oh, it's all good. Yeah. I want everyone to have a better relationship with technology because it's an addictive thing that we can't live without. Yeah. So it's not like drugs where you can just quit. It's like, yeah, your phone has all these addictive things, but you also need a phone to live in the modern world. So we have to learn how to manage it. So I love to apply what's called the 20 second rule, which is make something 20 seconds more inconvenient and you'll be a lot less likely to do it. You know, you have junk food in the house. We'll hide it in a box in the garage. So it's harder to get to. Then it's a pain in the butt to get to and you're going to use it less often. So with your phone, it's like I put my phone in airplane mode a lot. So if I want to use it, one, it's not buzzing at me with stuff. I have to choose. 
to engage with it. And then I have to go into settings, turn airplane mode off, wait for it to wake up. And there's this whole little moment, these moments where I get a chance to choose and go, actually, I don't want to check my phone right now. I can put it back in my pocket. As opposed to whipping it out instant access. Or if you're hooked on social media, it shouldn't be on your phone at all. At the very least, it shouldn't be on your home screen. Right. It should be buried on some back screen. You have to click three times to get to it. So, and you shouldn't have your password saved. So it should be sort of a pain in the butt to access. So you're only going to access it if you really want to. Right. As opposed to the compulsive use that they want us to use. Yeah. Obviously, it's still a fairly new phenomenon. But even I find myself using my phone more than I probably would like to be using my phone. Yeah. And uh, I'm not going to say that I figured out how to maintain a good relationship with technology, but I know that there are steps you can take. And I'm sure lots of other people are probably wondering what are other things that they can do to kind of manage that relationship. Because we are, and you are right, we're expected, we're wanted to have this relationship with technology. Yeah. I mean, the most common one I see in habit coaching work with folks in their 20s is they use their phone in bed too much. It's the last thing they do before they go to sleep. And it's the first thing you do first when they wake up in the morning. Yeah. And that one sabotages the quality of your sleep using it right before bed. And two, it's like, you're just blowing up your brain with a stimulation when you should be doing a self-care routine or just getting up and getting fresh air or working on something meaningful. Right. So my personal strategy is The phone has a dedicated space on the opposite side of the room from the bed. The charger is taped to the top of the dresser. So that's where it lives at night. It's plugged in charging and the alarm goes off. I have to actually get out of bed to go get my phone. And then it's still in airplane mode because I'm always in airplane mode from bedtime until after I've been up for a couple hours. I might utilize some of those strategies. Yeah. Give it a try. have been one of those people who sleeps with their phone. I stopped doing it recently and actually put my phone in the other room when I go to bed. And I am fully understanding of the fact that it's a bad habit and I don't want to do it. So we're figuring this stuff out. Yeah. One thing that I feel like I talk about almost every episode these days is kind of the loneliness conundrum. Speaking of social media and phones that a lot of people, specifically men, are dealing with these days. And I feel like specifically older men, but I I don't think it's gender specific. I don't even think it's age specific. I think mm-hmm. everybody's dealing with the fact that we are allegedly so plugged in yeah. to everyone else, but we're all much lonelier than we should be being plugged in supposedly to all of these people. It's weird, right? When I was growing up, long distance call cost money. Yeah. To speak to somebody that lived in another state or another country, you had the option of either making a long distance phone call, which was expensive, or sending a letter, which yeah. then the process of writing a letter, mailing it, then reading it, then writing you back, that was kind of like a two week process. Mm-hmm. So we have all of this kind of instant gratification communication now, but I don't know that we feel any less lonely than we did 25 years ago. Yeah, people are more lonely. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts as to why that even is? Part of it is that when we're physically together, 
we're not actually together because so much of our together time is spent looking at our phones. So we're engaged with whatever the phone has access to instead of the people right in front of us. Mm. So I try to model that with friends and family and clients where I put my phone in airplane mode when I'm with them. Or if it's not and it buzzes, I'll be like, wait, why is it ringing? It should be in airplane mode where I'm with people now. And that's me talking to myself in front of them. And then they get to see if that was an option. Oh, interesting. I think a lot of men are struggling and don't know how to talk to each other about it or talk to anyone about it. We have a shortage of therapists. It's really hard to get a therapy appointment if you need it. A lot of people can't afford it. Yeah. And we see this manifesting as high rates of depression, anxiety, suicide, mass shootings. It's not good. No, um, not at need all. need to figure out how to reconnect in real life. Yeah. And you mentioned there, there being so many barriers to entry for therapy. And yeah. the first barrier to entry, honestly, is the fact that therapy is still so stigmatized. So it's not even, oh, yeah. before you even get to the I can't afford it part or yeah. the I don't have access part, it's yeah. like, why would I go to therapy? Right. Or therapy is for crazy people or whatever the narrative is, something I constantly kind of try to break my brain over is how do we get, I mean, there's two parts to that. I mean, how do we get people to go to therapy, A, and B, how do we get people to interact with one another and be a community? How do we get people to understand that relationships with other people are important? Yeah. (sighs) I think... A lot of people avoid getting help, whether it's therapy or coaching or tutoring. It is because they're feeling a sense of shame and they know they have a problem. They're struggling. They don't necessarily know how to define the problem or how to fix it, but they know this is bad. I don't like how I am or what I'm doing or how things are going for me. And they assume that there's something wrong with them. Like they're broken, they're deficient. And because they make that assumption, they just feel shame. And getting help would be admitting to them, there's something wrong with you. So I'm always trying to reframe that for people. It's like, no, no, the problem's not you. It's just a problem. And millions of other people have had this problem or something very similar. And a bunch of them have figured out how to solve it. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. We don't have to go it alone. We got to find out what works and put those techniques into action. And that's what tutors do, that's what coaches do, that's what therapists do. So getting people from that it's I'm broken and therefore I'm in shame and avoidance to I'm struggling because it's hard and because it's hard, I need help. And having help is good. Life is difficult. Yeah. (laughs) At its best. Yeah. Why wouldn't you want somebody to, and I say that knowing that my own experience for the first two thirds of my life was, I'm not going to a fucking therapist, Mm -hmm. Uh, but why wouldn't you want as much help as possible to navigate this stuff? Mm -hmm. It's part of Uh, that toxic masculinity of we have to be the lone wolf. Yeah. You got to go alone. Yeah. Guys are stoic and strong and you can't express doubt or vulnerability or anything like that. It's so ass backwards. Right. It's like, well, no, we're supposed to be interdependent. 
We're tribal right. species. We've always lived with other people. There's not even such thing as a lone wolf. Wolves live in packs. Lo- right. Where did that saying even come from? Right. That's not just occurred to me. Yeah. If you see a lone wolf, there's other wolves nearby and you should be worried. <laughs> like, they're probably circling you like velociraptors. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Chris, that literally just occurred to me. Yeah. Uh, that, that saying is so ridiculous. Wow. Yeah. Huh. I, ah. See, folks, this podcast is learning experience even for me. so tell us about your book it's a humorous memoir called wood floats and other brilliant observations it's just a collection of little stories from my life up until i fell off that cliff so from childhood up to when i was early 30s and each story has a little lesson attached to it most of them are silly but occasionally there's some actual wisdom sprinkled in more so later in the book, as I was learning how to overcome my own challenges, Right, just something I wrote for fun during the pandemic as I was inspired to do so. I was thinking of a story and thinking, Oh, that could be a good blog post. And I wrote down and then I had another one idea and I was like, Oh, I wrote that down too. And, and then I just had like a flood of ideas and I had 30 sticky notes going. I'm like, Oh, wow. Maybe I should write a book. This is something. Yeah. How do you sort of balance the seriousness of what you do? It seems like you have a pretty good sense of humor. Yeah. Uh, How do you balance the heaviness of some of what you do with the lightness of (laughs) who you are? I think it's part of not taking yourself too seriously. People are avoid change in part because they take themselves too seriously. They might be over-identifying as one thing and taking that identity very seriously and not seeing any flexibility there or that they could look back in 10 years and laugh at themselves for how they are today. And so, like, I share my own failings and struggles and I do so seriously, but also if it's ridiculous, we're going to laugh about it and they're going to see that it's okay to laugh at yourself and hopefully feel that they could have that vulnerability too. It's important. Everybody trips and falls. Some of us trip and fall off of higher things than others, but many <laughs> trips and falls. Yeah. Uh, what is your self-care routine? Like you did mention that a little earlier. What are the things that Chris, besides birding? <laughs> <laughs> yes. What, what are some of the things that you do for self-care? I'm going to say what I did, but before I want to give a caveat, which is I did not start doing all these all at once. I built this routine up gradually, one thing at a time, and there are parts of the routine that expanded over time. So I wake up, I go outside, and I move my joints around, and then I come back inside and do some stretches and little exercises I have from physical therapy, and then I work out, and then I consume some wisdom either from a book or this service called Heroic, which has What's that? Heroic is a, a self-development book summary service. They have a lot going on, but I like to watch the plus one videos in the morning where they just do a three minute video with one good idea. Okay. Really helps my brain to hear a good idea in the morning, hear some wisdom. A lot of it stuff I've heard before, but the repetition helps it get ingrained and makes me more likely to make good choices throughout the day. 
And then I meditate. And then if I don't need to be running out the door, I'll write. And then I'll eat breakfast and come out of airplane mode and engage with the world and check email and check my phone and stuff. How long? Because that sounds like a lot in my brain. I'm like, okay, <laughs> this guy's getting up at 430 in the morning <laughs> to um, get all this stuff done before he walks out the door. Luckily, my work allows me flexibility. I'm not working nine to five. So if I was working nine to five, I'd probably have to get up at five. I usually wake up two to three hours before I have to leave the house to do this stuff. But I can cram the essentials into like an hour if I need to. But I built this all up really gradually one piece at a time. And I used a technique called habit stacking, where if you establish one habit well, so where it's automatic, you can stack another habit right on top or right before that one habit. And so it's like, these are now kind of glued together and it's easy to do one and the other more so than if you did them at completely separate times. That's super impressive. I speaking for myself, Mm -hmm. uh, I could certainly use more of that time in the morning to be disconnected from technology and to be a little bit more in tune with everything else that that is happening. So I, you're giving me a lot of food for thought here for stuff that I could be doing a little bit better in my own life. And I'm sure that you haven't reached the exalted place of incredible personal peace, or I'm sure there's still stuff that you're working on. Oh yeah. For yourself. Yeah, I'm um, not enlightened. You haven't hit the llama phase yet. Yeah. But also speaking to that sort of human part of things, what are some things you do to just kind of like Or what's one thing you feel like you have to work on or that you are working on to just be better, whether that's a short-term or a long-term thing? Yeah, I am trying to find more time with silence and stillness. I'm actually reading Ryan Holiday's Stillness is the Key right now, which is helping reinforce that idea. But I tend to fill the gaps in my days in the middle of the day with music or a puzzle or game or phone. And I, I have a feeling and a need for this constant stimulation. And I know that it's better for me to find time to just be, do nothing and let thoughts happen. Because when I do that, I have better thoughts. That's when I have actual ideas for creative projects. That's when I have insights about problems that I'm having. So I'm working on more stillness. Okay. Is there a way for people to achieve their desired level of stillness when they're in situations where it's like, I'm working 45, 50 hours a week, and then I got kids that I got to take to soccer practice. And there are some people who are just kind of overwhelmed with life. Yeah. Through nobody's fault. It's just... There are a lot of things that are kind of pulling at them. Yeah. Do you have any suggestions maybe for things that they can do or something that's worked for you to kind of achieve a little bit more peace and stillness in your life? Yeah. Yeah. There are a lot of little moments where you have the opportunity to be bored that we need to recapture. You go back to the 1990s before smartphones, everyone experienced little bits of boredom throughout their day. 
just like I'm waiting for the microwave to finish. I'm waiting for the elevator, waiting for the bus. Someone's late to a coffee meetup and I'm waiting for them. All those things we now fill with stimulation Mm. used to be you're just going to be bored. And it turns out boredom's good for you. And boredom is a time for you to recover from stress. And it doesn't have to be an hour long walk in the park or a 30 minute meditation or a yoga class or a whole week long vacation in the tropics. One minute is better than nothing. So if you're really busy, you need to shift the mindset to everything counts. Every little bit of rest and recovery is helpful. So take the ones that you're given instead of trying to cram in one more email check. Right. Right. I think that's super important. Again, kind of applying this mentally to myself. Yeah. To do going forward. And I'm still working on it. It's hard. Yeah. I I appreciate that you're coming from the perspective of somebody who's still in the fight. Mm -hmm. We're all still works in progress. It's been a few weeks and I haven't really put any of the suggestions that Chris made into official play yet, but we're working on it. Things have been kind of crazy lately, if you were not aware from the hiatus that we took a little while back. So trying to get things back in order, but definitely keeping Chris's thoughts in mind. If you would like to know more about Chris, go to becomingbetter.org. You can also pick up his book, which is called Wood Floats and Other Brilliant Observations. Uh, It's on Amazon. It's anywhere you can get books. And once again, thank you, Chris, for taking the time to be on the show. I hope you come back. Thank you for listening to Detoxicity. I hope you found this particular episode interesting. And if you are new, I hope you go back and listen to all of the older episodes. Uh, Once again, my name is Mike Joseph. I am the host and producer of this show. And uh, there are a lot of things that you can do to continue to support our mission, continue to support this podcast. Uh, Follow me on social media. I am on Instagram, Twitter, and I'm on TikTok as DetoxPodGuy. Uh, You can also send me an email if you'd like. I'm at detoxpod at gmail.com. I am always on the hunt for people with interesting, inspirational, and powerful stories. So if you know somebody who fits that bill or if you yourself fit that bill, please don't hesitate to drop me a line via email or via social media. Uh, Please make sure you subscribe on your podcast platform that you're listening to this on. Uh, Rate, comment, help a brother out, uh, help us move up in the rankings, Uh, follow me on social media, like I said, uh, follow our Patreon, or subscribe to my Patreon, actually, patreon.com slash detoxicitypod, you get access to exclusive episodes, you get episodes a little earlier than the general public, you get a cool-ass sticker, lots of stuff, once again, patreon.com slash detoxicitypod, quick shout out to Calvin Williams for providing the music, and, uh, doing his magic on the logo which was originally designed by jacob block i thank you all for listening i wish you all the best please take care of each other till next time peace